the overall impact that you can have by working with local entrepreneurs is is the real economic multiplier piece of this that goes beyond what I think an opportunity zone fund is meant even contemplates. Well, welcome back to the Public Money Pod, a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy. And we are proudly sponsored by Build America Mutual, the Government Finance Officers Association, MuniPro, and Odyssey Advisors. I'm Justin Marlowe, joined as always by my intrepid co-host, Californian purveyor of the long story short Substack, Maryland resident, 49ers fan, fiscal policy expert, Liz Farmer. Liz, welcome back. Thanks, Justin. Um, I should put that all on a business card. <laughs> <laughs> so you need an yes. extended, extended space on the business card. Exactly. Yeah, lots, of, yeah. and lo- lots of great stuff on Long Story Short, if I don't say so myself, as of well, late. Thank you. Or, you know, in, the, in the same neighborhoods that we're talking about uh, on today's episode, going to Eastern mm. Pennsylvania, I guess, versus Western Pennsylvania. But lots of, uh, lots of Pennsylvania in Liz's uh, writings as of late. <laughs> My mother-in-law would be proud. <laughs> well, today we're going to talk about opportunity zones. This is one of those economic development tools that's gotten a lot of attention both in and outside of public money circles, uh, as they right should. It's a very large program that was initiated through the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017, the big uh, Trump tax legislation. And uh, if anyone is unfamiliar, opportunity zones are in effect, a, a sort of supercharged federal incentive or set of incentives uh, designed to put private capital to work in areas that have generally not seen a lot of investment and a lot of development over the years. Lots of the discussion about opportunity zones is whether they've in fact done that or whether they've had other sorts of intended and unintended consequences. But there's no question that they are in widespread use and in places that have been using them, there are some very observable things that have happened in the not too distant past. And we're fortunate to have on the Public Money Pod today to give us some examples of that, uh, Drew Whiting, who is the executive director of the Erie, Pennsylvania Downtown Development Corporation, and Matt Wachter, who is uh, currently at uh, Carnegie Foundry in Pittsburgh, but was at one time a founding member of the Downtown Development Corporation in Erie, Pennsylvania. Erie is one of those jurisdictions that has done extensive use of opportunity zones, particularly for redevelopment of its downtown. And in many ways, one could argue a sort of textbook example of exactly what these kinds of incentives were designed to do. Liz, you've looked at this quite a bit uh, and have written some stories specifically on opportunity zones. You know, there's so much we could talk about. I think the one question that comes to mind immediately, certainly from a public money perspective, is what does it mean for these types of investments to to work, right? How do we define that success and how do we know if they're actually working? Certainly anytime we do tax preferences, tax incentives of any kind, the natural question becomes, is it is it doing what it was intended to do or is it just uh, maybe accelerating something that was already happening? Or is it, in some cases, as critics of Opportunity Zones have argued, really just kind of a sweetener for investment that was either going to happen already or was was already largely in place? Based on your work in this space, you know what are you seeing, and what does it tell us about how we should think about the success of opportunity zones from a public money perspective? Yeah, I think with any tax incentive, you want to know is it actually changing people's behavior? Are they doing something now that they wouldn't have otherwise? And um, and and all of the you know everything that falls out uh, comes after that. You know helps you determine if this has actually had the impact that 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 was intended. I 
Uh, I recently, well, not, not so recently, but this past fall, um, one of the stories I wrote for Route 50 uh, kind of looked at this question because there's been some research that's come out over the last year and a half. And and keep in mind, too, that, um, you know, we're talking about a program that was passed in 2017, but then, you know, in 2018, you had to pick the zones and there was all that going on. And then 2019, you can start rolling out investments. And then, as we all know, not much got done in 2020 in terms of yeah, so uh, the pandemic certainly had an impact in terms of getting to the point where we could have data, uh, like reliable data on this. But as I said, there's been some research that's come out. And and I looked at one, I mean, really, what I was really curious about is that gentrification question. Are, is, is it, are, are people being displaced? And then the, the, so the new, so the numbers coming in actually reflect more of a new population and it's not really improving the people's lives who were already there. But I'll, I'll give you some stats that kind of, that, that look at this from, from the research. So one is a, um, uh, I guess on a sheer scale in terms of that tax incentive changing behavior, the, in its first three years of full operation, um, investment has flowed to a, approximately 3,800 communities, which is a mark that took the federal new markets tax credit program 18 years to reach. So that's interesting. <laughs> and and uh, the U.S. Treasury Department did an, an analysis. And so far, however, the investment has been really targeted. So about half of zones have had some kind of investment, but the bulk of the money is spread across a small portion. Um, even so, at least 48 billion, uh, that was, and this is just by the end of 2020. So presumably there's you know, much more, more money, even more money than that now that's been invested in, in opportunity zones. So at least $48 billion are going to communities that are substantially more economically distressed than the rest of the country. Um, these jurisdictions average 87th in the 87th percentile for poverty, 81st for median household income, and in the 80th for unemployment. So not typically areas that investors are going to flock to. And I think that's kind of the the bottom line here is that early you know a lot of those early concerns were about well is it is it going to push people out are investors only going to invest in the most promising like eat lowest hanging fruit type places and I am sure that is definitely true for a, quite a number of opportunity zones but places that are you know in in the that low one of the lowest percentiles um, for for kind of all those economic indicators that developers look at there's money going there and so um, I think that's that's a positive thing um you know again it's it's still very early but it's it's been interesting to me to see how this how this is all played out and and as we're gonna gonna talk about in with Erie there are some places that have really kind of seen this as we can grab a hold of this and really make some changes and so I think some of it also does come down to the the you know the, the people on the ground in the locality are you gonna you know market this and and use it to the best of your um, to you know and take advantage of it in that way too. Yeah, absolutely. It is unique to, it's interesting to observe this in that the the state and local exposure, for lack of a better word, or, or the state and local effort that's required to participate in it seems quite a bit lower than it is for so many other federal types of supports that are available. If you're doing new market tax credits or uh, all, a lot of the traditional you know, federal incentives, there's state and local matches. The state's very heavily involved often in determining where and when those credits are allocated. There's extensive you know, feasibility studies and all sorts of things that, that have to be done, which can create real, which you could argue are exactly the right thing to do, given how much public money is involved, but also certainly create some barriers and, and arguably 
make it even more difficult for communities that don't have that expertise and those resources to be able to leverage those kinds of tools. This one's a little different, right? This one is, yeah. is really a pretty, pretty fast and direct federal support. And like you're saying, communities that were, that were positioned to do these kinds of reinvestments, but weren't able to find the kind of, of uh, traction that they needed in the existing programs were able to take this one and run with it, which I think has made it really interesting to watch. And, and from a public money perspective, something that we'll be watching for a while now, if you can get that kind of immediate investment and growth in, say, your property tax base, that's a very different kind of state and local public money implication than the long leg that often follows when you do in reinvestments and reinvestments through things like new markets, tax credits, and tax increment financing, and all these other tools that we often use for local economic development. So I think that's going to be interesting to see. This is a different sort of program and uh, created by a very different kind of presidential administration relative to those that we've seen. And uh, the, the legacy, I guess, uh, we'll observe over the next few years. Well, we are pleased to welcome to the Public Money Pod, Drew Whiting, who is the Executive Director of the Erie, Pennsylvania Downtown Development Corporation, and Matt Wachter, who is the Senior Vice President and General Counsel at the Carnegie Foundry. Gentlemen, welcome to the Public Money Pod. Thank you. Yeah, we're really excited to hear about uh, how Erie has has taken advantage of the opportunity zones of the federal program uh, that was created in the the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act back in 2017. Uh, the idea, of course, has been around much longer or a little bit longer uh, before then. I've reported on opportunity zones a, a few times uh, over the years, and I think almost in all of my interviews, <laughs> Erie, Erie comes up as as the model. You know, the the folks who are really doing this um, in a in a very aggressive way. So, can you tell me, tell us, tell our listeners, I guess, why is that, and uh, maybe give us a little background on 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 the view that Erie took uh, when the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was first passed. Well, there's a lot there. Um, so thank you very much. This is a great opportunity here to yeah. sort of tell the story. I'm, I'm fortunate. I'm Matt. Uh, I'm very fortunate to be here uh, today with, with Drew. So you called it a program, but in many ways, it's a tax incentive. And we'll, we'll get into that and, and mm-hmm. I think some of the advantages that, that we had uh, locally. So to backtrack a little bit, I am a tax lawyer by training. So I have a, a master's degree in tax. So I'm like the king of the nerds when it comes to lawyers. And I had a chance to... <laughs> Literally just looking at the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, I was like, All right, what is in this thing? This was before it was passed. And I stumbled on the code provision that had OZs in them. And I'm like, what is this? And I, and I read it, and I read it again. And I was practicing at a law firm, a great law firm in Erie, Pennsylvania, called McDonald Illig. And I called my brother, who is a municipal lawyer, um, at a different law firm and uh, regionally. And I called him, like, did you see this? This was written for cities like Erie. And at the time... Erie was really hurting, and it was the listed as the poorest zip code. We had the poorest zip code in the United States of America. We were like 515th out of 515 fastest growing cities. We were listed in uh, uh, one online ranking as the worst city in the country for African Americans. We're not doing well. And read about OZs, read about this incentive. Thought, wow, this is really written for cities like Erie. But if you looked at the provision at the time, it, it said that the governor of the state could only name like. 300 low-income census tracts throughout their state uh, within a provision of, I think it was like 60 days. Uh, it might have got extended out to 90. So yeah. we kind of had a like panic of, oh no, some intern in the governor's office is going to be like throwing a dart at a board because this is way too fast. <laughs> and 
uh, it, it, it moved on from there. So that's how, and I can get into the background on, on the steps that were then taken, but that's how I first became aware of, of OZs. Um, how, about, how about yourself, Drew? So I'm a startup lawyer by trade. So it's like the other end of the spectrum when it comes to lawyers. I was in Chicago for about 14 years practicing law from 2012 until when we moved here in 21 and was also heavily interested in the tax incentives that were there for angel investors and other types of uh, investment opportunities through real estate deals, et cetera. And the areas surrounding Chicago were also big OZ targets. And a lot of the guys that I knew that were participating in the venture capital markets we're also taking advantage of those in places like Michigan City and Gary. And even today, there's new funds being launched to do OZ work there. So when I got to Erie, I had known from visiting what it was like and had an idea that there was some progress being made. And so this is three or four years into Matt's journey, but saw what the EDDC had, had underway, which was a bunch of new buildings and development in downtown that hadn't seen it in generations. And started to look into how they got this going and realized it was the opportunity zones that I had heard about in my work as an attorney in Chicago. So from my perspective, the work that's been done here because of the opportunity zone tax incentives has created a momentum and an interest for guys like me that came to town with remote jobs and no expectation mm -hmm. of getting involved here. And now that I'm leading the organization that Matt helped start, we are taking advantage of the opportunities that that legislation provides. We are very much involved with the House Ways and Means Committee, which is looking at some extension and refining of that legislation. It's an interesting spot to be in. I've been in this role for seven months to hear Matt talk about the genesis of things and to be seeing it and understanding where we could even leverage it further in the next decade. Are we the model to follow? We could be, but it's all circumstantial. And I think Erie is one of those cities that could be looked to by those who are similarly situated with local investors sitting in zip codes that maybe have opportunity zones attached. So, it, you know, it's funny, I have a little bit of perspective on it because this all got started 2018. And so there was a real starting to be a real groundswell of support uh, among the private sector uh, to take a, a real hard stand uh, within the downtown core of the city of Erie called the Central Business District and try to improve some of these historic properties that had fallen into some very severe decay, blighted, abandoned properties primarily. So we saw what OZ was. Made a couple of phone calls. Like I said, I called my brother. Uh, we called the state senator who was just elected. We called the uh, newly elected mayor. And I mean, he was elected for like two weeks. And we're like, look at this. This is amazing. The way the story's been told to me over the years is the state senator went to the uh, chief of staff of, of the governor and said, look, we city of Erie needs to really is wants to be well positioned with opportunity zones we'd like to have a strong footing with this we know that you have so many days to name the zones and the chief of staff said what are you talking about <laughs> so they had no idea so oh we I, I would like to tell you that there was this massive public process of picking out the zones but there really wasn't it was we figured out which census tracts applied and picked them out on a map and thought this looks good and because uh, we didn't have time when I mean, you had days it was off to the races. We had all the zones named that we asked for. We were the first out of the gate in the state. And then it was a process of trying to figure out what these were. We put together a coalition of sort of the coalition of the willing, or we dragged them there. Everyone from, 
local organizations from our community foundation to our chamber of commerce to um, uh, neighborhood organizations are really broad state and local government a really broad sort of tent where we said hey we have a real opportunity here let's take a look at this what what can we actually uh, do now we ended up forming an entity called the flagship opportunity zone like development corp we put it under the chamber it then tried to do some public outreach with the map on what the OZs were. But at the same time, when I said it was, it was great timing for the formation of a new organization that Drew now runs called the Erie Downtown Development Corporation. And that was a 501c3 that was spearheaded by a group of uh, individuals in the community, all private sector, that really wanted to take a stand and invest back in their hometown and get, get capital back into the community. And that was led uh, uh, by my colleague at the law firm. He was asked to join. His name was John Persinger. Uh, and then myself, and then a third individual by the name of Cole Wright. So we were sort of the first three, uh, left our jobs and took on this opportunity. So we worked for a nonprofit entity. We're very fortunate. There was a for-profit entity, uh, which is an investment fund, that was raised at the same time and allowed for first at-risk capital that we could use to try to leverage and bring in additional funds. We then had this tool available to us that was OZ, and it was very well positioned for us to basically hit the ground running. It was a lot of work. We didn't own any property at the time. Acquired about three blocks, maybe a little more within a sort of a square radius and put together a great development plan that we then uh, had to execute on. And it was tough. That capital was leveraged pretty significantly. I think Drew can obviously get into the details, but we took a, an initial, it was $27.5 million. That was the, the private capital that we could use first at risk and to attract other dollars. Leveraged it to about 113 in development. And I'd say half of that uh, was OZ, and it was a long way, long road, uh, finding investors, trying to think through how this was done. Uh, we were fortunate because of just some of the skill sets that we brought to the table and the ability to model out transactions, think through what they look like, uh, take it a step up from just a return, but think about how to pass through depreciation and some of these other assets to investors that was a real attraction to actually get investment dollars into a place that severely needed it. Needed it. Again, it's the poorest zip code of the United States. Um, so it was not uh, not the easiest place to recruit capital. Let's get into that a little bit. <clears throat> the, I mean, one of, one of the things that I know is can be difficult about with opportunity zones, particularly ones that are that fall in that lowest income bracket, is getting investors to to take that leap. Um, you had that kind of that first at risk capital, which by the way, where did that come from? <laughs> So it was housed in something or something called the Erie Downtown Equity Fund. It was all local cap capital, our largest employers, largest organizations, two universities, two hospital systems, uh, a number of regional uh, banks with regional presence, uh, a few individuals, okay. our community foundation, and credit to them because none of this would have happened without that initial support. Yeah, it sounds like that was pretty key. Um, but e even with that, was it how much more, more work and negotiations, conversations, relationship building uh, did it take to get to get more investors on board to be able to do what you wanted to do? Oh, I probably had four hundred phone calls <laughs> to say to say the least, and, and I think Drew can speak to that. And I think he's had four hundred more since. One of the problems that a zip code like Erie's downtown has is that there hasn't been a renovated building that's traded in the market in forty years down here. So when you go to try to finance the build out of a new building, the renovation of a building, a ground up development, part of that process is going to the bank and they send an appraiser out with all of your plans and the piece of property that you bought. And you've got to 
$15 million development set to go and you've got 10 or $15 million of cash allocated to it in a normal circumstance is a traditional real estate investment development play. In a town where rents are low, there's no comps in the market because nothing's sold that's anywhere near what we're trying to build here in 50 years. The appraisals will come back on a $50 million deal at about 25, which means a traditional lender can only lend 20 at best. And so now you've got 20 from the bank and another 15 from your first loss capital, EDF, local supporter type of investors, and you still have to go out and find another 15 million. So incomes, opportunities on fund, impact investors. In our case, um, it's a group called Arcteris. So Arcteris has a, an opportunity zone fund that has an impact mission that is focused on rebuilding these cities. They have an expectation of return. It's a for-profit fund. There's no mistake there, but it's the traditional real estate investor that's looking for internal rates of return in the 15 to 25% range. Uh, these guys are at 9% to 12%, which is a much different bargain. So you can find these opportunity zone funds, which we had some other local businesses that were able to provide those funds some capital to then cycle through to be able to provide that gap financing to our projects. That was the early days. We're still there. There's still that appraisal gap. There's through what happened with the pandemic and the infrastructure bill that got passed and ARPA funds, our county and state have a bunch of funds available to them now that they're looking at creating opportunities with as well. And that's also gap financing oriented dollars. So we have public money that's geared towards looking at new projects now. But what did happen is that all of these development projects that we did with our local investors, with our Opportunity Zone Impact Investor, and with bank debt, we're all underwritten for downtown employment level traffic prior to the pandemic. And we're all underwritten at with, you know, the acquisition costs kind of locked in, but with development costs estimated based on what everybody thought they would be at the time. And now you run into a supply chain crunch and labor shortages and delays because you can't have as many people on site as you used to have. And the cost of lumber is through the roof. So all those models that you put together to get investors a certain return and to get numbers to where you want them to be becomes much more difficult. So there are challenges here that are going to exist in any opportunity zone that starts today. We faced all those challenges, plus the difficulties of building in a downtown during through a pandemic. And right now we're starting to see things coming out on the other side of that. A lot of employers said people can get back to work. We are looking at new deals. And those new deals, we're, we're going in with very conservative kind of underwriting principles. And we're also looking at not just impact funds from Opportunity Zone investors and local equity, but other government programs as well. One follow-up question going back just to the to the origins of this, you've talked quite a bit about the selection of the downtown core as the as the first priority. I wonder if you could, it, it would seem obvious why you would do that, but I'm wondering if there was any more to that decision uh, around you know why that was the first target. I know the both the proponents and the critics of Opportunity Zones have said that that is such a, an essential component of not only figuring out whether it actually works, but sort of the perceptions, as you were saying, of whether an opportunity zone has, has has worked, has accomplished what it was intended to accomplish. So, can you tell us a little bit more about the, you know, why that downtown core was the first priority. So, from a from a um, sort of a macro view, the city of Erie is a city that had a population of one hundred thirty eight thousand in the nineteen sixties, dropped down to <clears throat> I think it's about ninety two thousand today. 
of which arguably 20% are really supplemented by new American and refugees that have come to the community. So it is a city that has had a, a lot of movement over the years. But like many of these sort of legacy cities, there's been a big, big flight out to the suburbs. And while the city may have shrunk considerably, the county's population has been fairly stable. In the city itself, what does that mean? It means that there was a significant amount of boarded up buildings and abandoned abandoned structures or structures where only the ground and the many of the structures that we acquired to redevelop just the ground floor may have been occupied uh but three-fourths of the building floors two through five you know death traps i hate to say it or a real real nuisance properties that had big big structural uh deficiencies that needed to be uh addressed deferred maintenance issues etc so when you look at the city of erie that was really where the heart is. Uh, it is the central business district, and and there are over I think over six or seven thousand people a day that at least pre-COVID that went into the, the downtown to work. But the beautiful the beautiful thing about Erie is that it has a waterfront, and it is a beautiful waterfront. And in many ways, it's an undeveloped waterfront. Over the last ten years, there's been some some significant, very well done development, but it's an untouched gem uh, for the community. And this is a community that needs to really to develop its property to build up its tax base, uh, which is generated from real estate property development. So when we took a look at it. It was really just a nice tee from the waterfront down to the the corridor of the city, and then a few other. Uh, districts, one being is called 12th Street, which is the old um, industrial manufacturing corridor, which again uh, is is in many ways underutilized. So it logically made sense. There created a lot of density. We were very lucky in the fact that we had contiguous zones, which was a, a term of art in OC legislation. So we were able to connect these things. There was no need to pay for a $300,000 study and a group to come in and do this. It, to the people on the ground, it was pretty readily apparent. Yeah, there's also other cities that the group learned from early on and we're continuing to learn from today. 3CDC in Cincinnati has their over the Rhine neighborhood and their basic city center business district as well. They built in cluster format because they understood that when you do that, you're building the residential residential demand for the goods and services that the retail, food service, grocery type of operations need to survive. When you're, especially when you're building in an area where that's not really coming from anywhere outside of what you're building, at least initially. So we followed that here. The other really important thing that I think John, Matt, and Nicole and the team focused on early on was Steve Leeper in Cincinnati stresses better utilization of public spaces and controlling the ground floor experience mm-hmm. within these cities. So that means you need to have well-lit storefronts that are inviting. Um, with businesses inside that understand that mission and are participants in the community, not just tenants of your buildings. Downtown now is becoming, we have a a climbing gym that just opened that's a state-of-the-art 35,000 square foot gym that's 650 members signed up in the first month we were open. Um, We just opened a cigar lounge, a steakhouse, a food hall with nine vendors in it. Um, And then we have an entire side of the street that's dedicated to retail. Every one of those businesses, a local business, that is a small business run by a couple of people, a family, you know, new Americans, you name it. And that draws the community and it becomes the center for social activity, for entertainment, for just gathering and doing business, whatever it may be. Uh, those public spaces are getting utilized and people are starting to care about what's happening downtown. And it allows us to push to ask for things that maybe wouldn't have been able to get through City Hall 10 years ago. So that's what we've done. We're happy to serve as that sounding board for anybody else that's looking to do it as well. And, and we haven't done everything perfectly. So 
there's there's context and there's things to learn and, and lessons to be had through all of it. So that certainly does sound like momentum is creating more interest and in, and in, in it's and it's building. Um, and those those businesses you mentioned, you said they're all um, owned they're start, they're owned by local by local people, and it and it kind of leads me into this the one of the things I wanted to ask about which is I think one of the criticisms or one of the worries maybe with opportunity zones has been, will it really be a rising tide lifts all boats or will it be the rising tide displaces the boats that were, you know, in, the few boats that were in the harbor? Maybe, uh, you know, encouraging local, having local people open the open businesses is one way to ensure that the money, that, that people aren't displaced and that the money genuinely, you know, stays within the community. Are there, are there other ways that you've addressed those concerns? Yeah, I, I think it comes down to priorities and leadership. This is an, it's an interesting setup that we have. Matt kind of led in with this a little bit, but we have a not-for-profit organization, the 501c3, with the mission of economic and real estate development in the downtown of Erie. Our organization is developing and managing properties and assets for some for-profit entities that own those, those and are the, the landlords, essentially. So there's this constant push and pull of are we leaning full economic development or are we, you know, more of a for-profit fund manager when it comes to our management of those entities? And when I was interviewing for this job, that was one of the questions I asked, like, am I being asked to manage the uh, suburban mall food court or am I being asked to be a contributor to the community and focused on economic development? Because I come from the for-profit world and I can, I can wear either hat, but if you, if you just need a food court management guy, then I'm probably not the one for you. And I think John and Matt took the same approach early on. It was, if we're going to do this, we're doing it the right way. Our 501c3 is set up with a mission and we need to live up to it. And that means that you create opportunities for local businesses. If I bring in a master franchisee that's got a bunch of uh, Dunkin' Donuts or Arby's or Burger Kings and throw them into our food court, the profits from those businesses leave town immediately. They get sucked out. Nothing stays here. If I find the local uh, Dominican food restaurant or guy that's making really good burgers and wings and I bring him in, that person succeeds. Their their family members are working there. Their friends are working there. Those profits stay here. And maybe they're so successful that they got to move out and open up a new place. And that's another business that now exists with more employees and a larger tax base and just a richer community overall. And so it's, uh, don't get me wrong, it is really hard to play that role, to be in the economic development focus. It would be way easier to manage the suburban mall food court because you just sign a 10-year lease and walk away. Hmm. The overall impact that you can have by working with local entrepreneurs is is the real economic multiplier piece of this that goes beyond what I think an opportunity zone fund is meant even contemplates. True, I think that was really well put. And you know, the one thing we found when it was early days is that there was this narrative created around sort of these buzzwords, which are really real substantive things like gentrification and displacement. But people didn't understand them within the context of a community like Erie and in a downtown core that was largely these properties were largely abandoned or, or blighted. So, you know, we would be literally screamed at for displacement. And I would say, ooh, ghosts? <laughs> <laughs> no one lives in these things. <laughs> so there there was, so, I mean, maybe from a policy perspective, we're trying to think about this from, uh, from an academic point of view. It's very difficult to take these real issues that, you know, I used to live in New York City, that apply to Brooklyn, right? Or some of the suburbs of Chicago or in Philadelphia or these other areas that, 
Nashville, I don't know, that are absolutely booming and you have growth on growth on growth on growth on growth that's literally up consuming uh, the mom and pop shops and everyone else. That was not the case here. And it's uh, very difficult sometimes to relay those things to people or what an organization is trying to do when they have almost like a false narrative or, a, or a, uh, an idea that uh, was written just for a, a different type of community. You've kind of hinted at this, and, and I'm curious maybe to extend out just a little bit further. So you, we've talked about success in a lot of different ways here, and you clearly have a sense of what that means today taking a walk around and, and, and talking about those opportunities that have been created for so many people and thinking about success, maybe in the kind of intermediate to long-term, what comes to mind? How are you thinking about that? Is it the, these kinds of investment dollars that we're talking about? Is it jobs created? Is it other kinds of opportunities? What, what comes to mind when you think about the longer term success? So maybe I'll take a stab at it from when we were first formed and what we looked at as what success would be. And Drew could kind of uh, then speak to it to where we are today and how he's looking to the next you know, five or 10 years. But success for us were, were a number of metrics. One, we needed to just survive the, the fire. And, and what I mean by that is it was a lot of criticism. And it was a, a lot of you know, professional attacks, personal attacks, um, people in the community, local, some local politicians trying to get things riled up. It, it was a very difficult and heavy lift. And uh, the fact that the community, the organization was able to survive that and just keep its noses to the grindstone and, and do the work that it needed to do, that was, <laughs> that was sort of goal one. Uh, the second was simply property acquisition because we didn't own any property when we started. We had some capital available to us, but we had to actually go out and buy this property. It included a McDonald's, which is not an easy thing to acquire. Um, so we had to go out and acquire this property, put together plans, and then come up with a viable, uh, investable product, so to say. Something, that, a development plan that could attract third-party third party dollars, which it ultimately ultimately did. That was basically the main goal, and that took about a year and a half um, to be able to be able to do that. And then from that way, there were a number of different metrics, and, and Drew can certainly speak to it, but it was jobs created. It was uh, new life downtown, you know, creating density, more people moving down into the community and then the the tax base like he said it was i think it was 186 dollars what these properties re- originally paid in real estate property tax well in pennsylvania that pays for local government county government and the schools so these are the things that people really care about you know is someone going to call when you call 911 is the pothole filled and do you have new textbooks in the classroom these are the things people care about day to day so we've been able to generate uh quite a bit of um uh, real estate property tax from that that can go back in, into the community which i think was was absolutely one of the other factors that we looked at for success when we got started the measurables that matt mentioned are definitely a big part of that and I think we're continuing to track those in terms of jobs and tax tax base increment. There's, I, I think the biggest piece for me is to see that the work that was done has encouraged others to step up and do their own projects on the street. No organization is gonna be doing all of this work themselves forever. And to really get to scale and to realize that future that perpetuates itself and won't just fall apart the minute people stop pumping money into it. You need to get to a point where there's enough density beyond just the footprint that you've created in order to bring up that city so that the appraisal gap dissipates over time so that it becomes feasible for developers who haven't touched a commercial property on a main street in 40 years because it doesn't make any financial sense to have the tools, to have the gap financing and to have uh, the comps on the street to get a deal done and finance in a more conventional way. 
we're headed there. It's probably another five to 10 years before we really see that the city reach that um, conventional financeable project type of realm. But we're trending in the right direction. And some of that is pure dollars and, me- and measurables statistics. Uh, some of it's creating a sense of FOMO and capitalizing on the momentum that's there. It's some of the stuff that you can't quantify that you can see and you can feel that kinetic energy and it's the momentum in town. Um, that's the st- that's the kind of thing that I feed off of personally. Um, the numbers are great and that helps me raise money and get more projects done, but it's, it's the rest of it that drives people down here that really helps us create that sustainable environment and that change of behavior from all that flight to the suburbs in a generation of people that now looks at downtown as like the center of entertainment. That's where you go on a date night. That's where you're hanging out with your kids on a Saturday or Sunday morning when you're trying to figure out what do you do all morning with two little kids on a Saturday or Sunday. That's 40 degrees and cloudy for six months in Erie. So weather aside, um, a lot of the things that you've you've mentioned are you know, are kind of part of this marketing package, package, both the 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 dollar impact of of what you all have done and that those intangibles. Um, I think one of the things that impressed me when I was looking over your website and and the things you've talked about in terms of financial modeling uh, to to kind of put help put investors at ease. I mean, a lot of that stuff is on the more sophisticated end when I've looked at many opportunity zones across the country. So not every city, I think, is as lucky to have such a such a a robust uh, group of of resources at its fingertips in in the EDDC and what you all do. So, do you have any advice uh, for places that are that are either that are smaller, less resourced, uh, to be able to kind of you know start to to pick off and 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 select some of these some of these methods that you've employed? Yeah, I mean, we were really lucky to have people like the Matt and John Nicole and. We have some really strong law firms and and local businesses that were able to step up and provide some of those resources for us. But it is a complex structure and you're relying on things like historic tax credits and things like, you know, different different other other tax abatements, making sure that you're set up correctly to take advantage of an opportunity zone. And they relied on a lot of out of town resources to do that from neighboring cities. They were traveling to Cincinnati to say, hey, do you have anybody here that has expertise in, you know, storefront design on a main street and bringing those people to town? I would volunteer our group to say, if you if you're in a city that doesn't feel like you have the resources to get things going, we'd love to help or refer you to resources outside of your city that we use that we found really helpful. You know, our architect came from Detroit. Our owner's rep and development partner, co-developer, came from Buffalo. We have tax specialists working with us on historic tax credits and opportunity zone fund work coming from Cleveland, Pittsburgh, Buffalo. I mean, it's relying on people in other places is something that you're going to have to do. Um, And hopefully you build the capacity to be able to do it yourselves over time. But, you know, lean on us as a resource and we'll connect you with anybody else that we think might be helpful. Well, thanks so much to Drew Whiting, who is the executive director of the Erie, Pennsylvania Downtown Development Corporation, and Matt Wachter, who is the senior vice president and general counsel at Carnegie Foundry, and Matt, a founding member of the Erie, Pennsylvania Downtown Development Corporation. Thanks a lot, guys, for joining us here today on the Public Money Pod. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Well, thanks again to Drew and Matt for that 
abundance of information and background into how Erie, um, Erie's Opportunity Zones got to the point where they're at today with all that investment. And there's, of course, as always, a lot more work to do. And I'm hoping some of our listeners could to relate to some of that and take, have some takeaways. They mentioned a few times that the um, the updates to the legislation that are that's pending now in Congress. So the rift from the headlines piece I pulled this week is is something that talks about that. It was published in the Daily Journal of Commerce uh, in Oregon. And it's written by local attorney um, Connie Rathbone, and it's an it's a, it's an op-ed. She is for the Opportunity Zones, and she kind of details what what some of these what some of these changes are going to be. She notes that that one of the proposed changes is uh, that it would be extended for two years, so um, until the end of 2028. And as we spoke about before, that's uh, I feel like kind of maybe gives back that 2019 slash 2020 year that that kind of went 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 to the wayside a little bit with uh with with the pandemic so instead of uh, anyone who's invested at the at the very beginning and still has their money in these opportunity zones instead of paying your taxes at the end of 2026 the capital gains investors would have until the end of 2028 so that's one kind of easy low-hanging fruit thing that they're probably going to change she goes into some more nitty-gritty changes. One is they're substantial, though. So she talks about creating an early sunset for certain qualified opportunity zones that no longer represent impoverished areas. And that's that's one of the things I was thinking about, too, as we were talking with, with uh, Matt and, and Drew, is that at some point, ideally, Erie would not need to be an opportunity zone anymore. It wouldn't qualify. And that's sort of the goal, right, of these places is is to to not uh, be an underserved, underinvested in area. So there is, there would be a provision now to kind of to phase out those those places that have really benefited and, and now could be a success example. So another one would, would terminate the qualification of census tracts that have a median family income at or above 130% of the national median and allow states to to then, disqual- to then disqualify other zones. Again, um, just one another provision that kind of helps phase out those zones that have been more successful and be able to have um, new zones named in. And so, uh, some basically back when I was reporting on this, I think some of the this this came up in terms of this being a thing in Congress that needed to be addressed because you could you could get the sense of I don't want to say panic, but just you know these zones are now finally up and running. There's the investor interest is there. We have data, and oh my gosh, it's like two years until, or two and a half, two-ish years until, until it all goes away. And so there was certainly that, that, that sense I got in these, in the, any, in, in the interviews that I did for that last story that people really wanted to extend this because they felt like we needed, they just needed more time. And so I think that's kind of the number one thing now, but then also some tweaks to make it more, uh, more adaptable as, as well. So Justin, just any, any other takeaways that you would, would point out from, from these proposals? Or, or anything else from you know how it connects to the interview? Yeah, it's an interesting, interesting piece of getting into the kind of the legal dimensions of that. It, w- it was interesting the way that uh, both Matt and Drew talked about how this is something that seems to enjoy bipartisan support, and I think that makes sense at kind of a, at a high level. And then when you get into some of these specifics around, well, what would it mean for this to be a little bit more accountable, or what would it mean to have maybe a little bit more flexibility at the state level to to adapt and change? where zones are happening and, and what sorts of investments are flowing to different types of zones. It gets a bit more complicated. And, and it's one of the points that's trying to make here is that 
you know, to, to write that into new legislation could be easier said than done. So we'll have to kind of see how this shakes out. You know, one of the things that, that jumped out at me too, is I was hearing your, uh, your summary of it and, and looking at it myself was the irony of this, for those of us who've been around the muni market for a while, I might recall an instrument that was in the market for the better part of about a decade of something called QZAPs, Qualified Zone Academy Bonds, which were a, a, a tool that was designed to promote investment in uh, underserved educational areas, particularly would essentially create a, an academy zone, which would be a lot like an opportunity zone. And there were some different types of investment tools that were available to, to make that sort of thing happen. A big one was that there was a, the creation at the federal level of um, of different kinds of tax credit bonds. So rather than traditional municipal bond investors, where you have investors that are buying the bonds and then claiming the tax exemption uh, as a as a claiming the tax exemption against their taxes, you could actually purchase tax credits much the same way that we use tax credits for for new market tax credits or LIHTC, the low income housing tax credits. Only it was to finance you know, school construction, finance the creation of new curriculum, finance all sorts of things in historically under invested in school districts and and, uh, and even areas within school districts. And the interesting thing was that the Tax Cuts and Job Act got rid of it. I mean, it essentially ended the QZAB program, which in part as a way to help pay for what became the, the Tax Cuts and Job Act by taking a lot of those tax credits off the table. But one of the criticisms, I think, of, of the QZAB program was that it didn't have that kind of flexibility that we're now seem, we now seem to want to try to put into opportunity zones, that there just was, you didn't have the ability to kind of go in and redefine what success looked like. You didn't have the ability to to change some of the definitions uh, as for for zones that were in place already and that sort of thing. So in a weird way, it's sort of a lesson learned here. We're seeing some some policy learning happening at the federal level. Saying when you when you attach investment to a geographic area, there's some challenges you need to face. You need to be able to address that so that you don't lose that bipartisan support and it doesn't go away the way that the QZAP program did. Thanks again to our season two sponsors, Build America Mutual, MuniPro, Odyssey Advisors, and the Government Finance Officers Association. The Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy, where we are proudly produced by Hannah Burnick. You can learn more about the center and its work at munifinance.uchicago.edu. That's munifinance.uchicago.edu. You can learn more about Liz Farmer's work at her substack, Long Story Short. That's Long Story Short. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you next time on The Public Money Pod.